We're in First Timothy, and uh, we're actually coming to the conclusion of this letter, but I wanted to go back to the beginning of the letter and read a few verses. So let's start in chapter 1, First Timothy, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. And then if you turn to the end of the letter, the last two verses. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I said, we're coming to the conclusion of this letter that Paul sent to his young co-worker, Timothy. It's a letter that's rich with insight into, I think, the character of both Paul and Timothy. We'll see a little of that uh, this morning. But it's also rich in important practical truths concerning the proper functioning of the church. You might remember, I tried to emphasize one of the uh, sections of the letter where Paul actually tells us what the purpose of writing the letter was. He said it was so that Timothy would know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So if we want to know how to conduct ourselves, here's a good place to look, look in this letter. We've seen a lot concerning New Testament church life. And I think it's good to remember that although these things were written to a church 2,000 years ago in Ephesus, they can be applied to us today. They have very real and practical implications for how the church should function today. We have to acknowledge that this is a different culture and there's things that we have to view through that lens, but nevertheless, these things were written for our instruction, for uh, understanding how the church should properly function. One of the things, one of the primary things that we saw was that Paul emphasized prayer. Prayer must be preeminent in the church. It must be there if the church is going to function the way a church should should function. Um, he went on after speaking about prayer. He gave some instructions to uh, the women in, in the church concerning their proper adornment and proper attitude. We, I'm just kind of giving a real quick uh, overview here. We went uh, 
into the uh, qualifications for the elders and deacons. They, most of chapter 3 was dealing with the qualifications for elder, elders and deacons. <coughs> Next came the subject of how a church should take care of its own people. That is, he emphasized that families should take care of their own members so that the church could assist those who really needed the help of the church, especially those that were widows indeed. Um, so he uh, talks about just practical things, very practical things in relationship to the functioning of the church. He also brought out that the elders who rule well should be considered of, of double honor, but those who persist in known sin need to be rebuked. We saw that the proper functioning church views itself as a family, uh, a family of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, and that whatever place a person finds themselves in the church, their lives should adorn the gospel. He brings that out especially in relationship to slaves and masters. And I think the reason he did that was because there were a lot of slaves that have become part of the New Testament church. One, one of the major themes that runs through the letter is how the church should deal with false teachers and false teaching. These false teachers seem to, seem to have been a combination of Jewish legalism uh, coupled with some type of Greek Gnosticism. Paul especially focuses on their, these false teachers' unscriptural views concerning material things. On the one hand, you had this early Gnosticism, uh, which was claiming some type of special secret knowledge, and it was presenting the idea that matter was evil. So abstinence from certain foods and forbidding marriage was, was what they were putting forth. Paul says that type of thing is actually that it's the doctrines of demons, he called it, and said that God had created such things as marriage and foods to be enjoyed by those who believe and know the truth. So that was one aspect of it. But on the other hand, there was an equally erroneous teaching that godliness is a means of material gain. You know, uh, religion can make you rich. That's, that's not just a teaching from 2,000 years ago. There's a lot of people that would present that uh, teaching today, a lot of false teachers. Paul emphasized, though, that contentment, not covetousness, is the mark of a true Christian. And he pointed out the dangers of money. It's not evil in itself, but the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and have caused some by longing after it to wander away from the faith. So he emphasized the area of, of money and proper attitude. He exhorts those who were rich not to be proud, but to be generous and ready to share. Probably the best summation of the letter was what we read, at least the positive aspects of the letter is what we read to begin our time here, he says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Christian teaching should always aim at, at that, at those things. So that was just a very brief summary of some of the things, some of the highlights of what we've looked at over the months as we've gone through this letter. 
But that brings us then to these last two, <clears throat> last two verses. And Paul actually begins or ends the way he began. If you notice when I read the, the uh, verses at the beginning of the letter, they're very similar to those at the end of the letter. In fact, let me just show you here in verse 6 of chapter 1. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. So straying from these things, turning aside to fruitless discussion. And then what he says here, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. For some have professed, some have professed and have gone astray from the faith. So again, this was, this was one of the major reasons that Paul felt like Timothy needed to stay there at Ephesus because there were false teachings, foolish speculations, things that were leading people astray, and some had actually gone astray from the faith. And Paul is exhorting Timothy to, to stand against that type of thing. God had entrusted Timothy with the precious treasure of his word, his truth, his gospel, and his people. And Timothy needed to guard them, to keep them, to preserve them, not to allow anything or anyone to rob him of this deposit, this sacred trust. I use the word deposit because they, uh, the commentaries say that when, he's, uh, when um, Paul used that phrase, entrusted to you, it was actually a banking term. It was like a deposit that's been given to you. God had deposited the gospel with Timothy, and he deposited this church. In one sense, he deposited this church with Timothy. And he was supposed to keep it, guard it, watch over it. And Timothy was to avoid, turn away from, not waste time on such things as idle talk and empty chatter and foolish specula speculations, things which were falsely called knowledge. In other words, they had... Uh, the, the way they were put forth, they were presented as some great intellectual, uh, some stimulating thing that would really help you. And what it really was was something that would drag you down and turn you away from the faith. When Paul spoke of opposing arguments, you see that there in verse 20. Empty chatter and opposing arguments. When he spoke of opposing arguments, the Greek word there is antithesis. Antithesis, which it literally means a rival thesis. He says, be careful of these rival theses because they'll lead you astray. Paul used the word here to speak of any supposed knowledge that opposed God's <coughs> revealed truth. So these false teachers called their doctrines, their teaching, gnosis or knowledge. That's where we get this word um, Gnostic comes from that word knowledge. They called it knowledge, but it was not knowledge that would lead to godliness. Heretical teachings that contradict the clear teachings advanced by God's authoritative uh, teachers in the New Testament church would cause people to go astray from the faith. These, these rival theses would turn people away from God. Human speculations which deny the revelation from the living God are not knowledge, their ignorance, their error, and their foolishness. You, know, you can put any label on it you want to make it sound good, but God says, no, it's foolishness. It's error. It's ignorance. 
any wisdom that does not begin with the fear of the Lord will prove to be a dead-end street. So, there were systems like that in Paul's day, leading people astray. And there are systems like that in our day. In fact, the college campus and popular culture are dominated by these opposing arguments. Pseudo-intellectual worldviews that deny God, exalt man, and mock at sin. You'll find that throughout our culture and throughout a uh, college campus. They deny God, exalt man, and mock at sin. So, it's so-called knowledge, but it's not really. And it's coming at us constantly, either overtly or covertly, denying the truth of the gospel. And Paul says, avoid that type of thing, such teachings as this. Avoid worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments, which are falsely called knowledge. Don't waste your time on subtle arguments. Don't waste your time on clever speculations or sophisticated word battles. Don't try to be clever. In the end, it will not be intellectual cleverness, but God's word coupled with godly character. God's word given in the power of the spirit that really count for eternity. Not cleverness, not the wise way you can use words and that type of thing to sway people. No, the power of God coming through a godly character presenting the word of God. The wisdom of this world always has been and always will be foolishness to God. He's truthful. His word is truth. So we need to guard God's word in our hearts and in the hearts of others. And I think that's what Paul is saying to Timothy here. Guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard it in your own heart and then guard it in those that you're responsible for. Um, that's what we need to. That's what we need to be doing too, guarding God's word in our heart, and be concerned about guarding it in one another's hearts. Well, the beginning of chapter verse twenty, I think, is significant. It gives a sense of the heartfelt emotion that Paul had for his beloved co-worker and son in the faith. O Timothy, not just Timothy, O Timothy. In that little one-letter word O is the heartbeat of true Christianity. I looked in the Redemption Hymnal in the index. There's something like 70 of the songs that start with that word O. If we lose that, We've lost the vital breath of Christianity if we lose that O in our, in our Christianity. Without the O towards God, we don't have real worship. Without the O towards our fellow believers, something is certainly lacking in our fellowship, our compassion, and our care for one another. This is not the language when we see Paul saying this to Timothy, Oh, Timothy, this is not the language of a teacher giving out an assignment. This is the language 
of a loving father caring for his son. Oh, Timothy. It's not the language of dead religion. It's the language of a living faith. It's not the language of legalism or ritual. It's the language of love. In this little expression is seen the reality of the power of God to change lives because this is not the language of Saul, the unconverted Pharisee. This is the language of Paul, the Christian, for a fellow Christian. Oh, Timothy. It's the language of a person lovingly involved in the welfare of another. Now, I said all that because in my own mind, that word, when I, when I read that, I think of a chapter in one of Tozer's books, uh, which was called, Are We Losing Our O? Are We Losing Our O? It's, you know, it's amazing. I was just thinking about this. It's kind of a side note here. But the things you read as a new Christian are really important because you, you get a understanding of how to view life and uh, it'll affect you the rest of your life. So get, you know, it's good to have good teaching, good Christian literature right as you begin the Christian life. I, I read that when I was a young Christian. Stuck with me all these years. Are you losing your old? Uh, here's what Tozer says. He says, we Christians should watch lest we lose the O from our hearts. Basically, Tozer was, was saying that even though our Christianity is not based on emotion, if there's no passion, no heartfelt desire toward God or others, there's something very wrong with our Christianity. He says this, Churches and missionary societies should keep always before them that the knowledge that progress can be made only by the O's and ahs of spirit-filled hearts. So if you want to read that, that's in the, his book called Born After Midnight, chapter 20. But it's a good question to ask ourselves, isn't it? Good question. Are we losing our O? Well, Paul hadn't lost it. Oh, Timothy, he says. Oh, Timothy. Guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. So the parting words of Paul to Timothy are this, are these, grace be with you. This is a short but comprehensive benediction or prayer at the end of this letter. Everything in the Christian life from beginning to end comes by way of the grace of God given to us in Christ. All of grace. Spurgeon had that book, All of Grace. All that Paul has told Timothy would be of no avail without the grace of God. All, all the instructions, all these admonitions would not be followed through on without the grace of God. So he, grace be with you. It takes grace, the grace of God, to shepherd the flock of God. This is what Timothy was called to do here. It takes the grace of God to live the Christian life. It takes the grace of God 
for Timothy to guard what had been entrusted to him. But Paul knew that by the grace of God, Timothy could and would carry on the work the Holy Spirit had called him to and empowered him and equipped him for. Grace, grace, grace would bring this about. So Paul ends not just this letter, but all his New Testament letters with grace. Now he ends them in a little different way. We, uh, you can just go through these letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote, and uh, there will be different endings, but there will always be grace. He'll always say something about grace at the end of his letter. <clears throat> Whatever we receive from God, we receive because of the riches of his grace. And it's good to remember that for those who have put their trust in Christ, there's grace that is always available and always sufficient. Always available, always sufficient. So our desire and prayer for our fellow believers should be just what Paul's was for Timothy here. Grace be with you. We know this, that... Only the grace of God will bring us to glory. But it will bring us to glory. So, in all our interactions with one another, down at the bottom of it all, we should have this attitude, grace be with you. So, as we conclude our study of this letter of 1 Timothy, I'll just close the way Paul did. Grace be with you. Grace be with you, each, as you seek to live out what we've learned from this epistle. Grace be with you as we interact with one another. Grace be with you as you seek God to know his will in your life. It's a good overall prayer for uh, the Christian life, for each of us to pray for one another. That's where I would like to close. <clears throat>